Welcome to the Kaiser Education Series. My name is Gabe Derman, and I'm a human performance and education specialist at Kaiser. Today's discussion focuses on the considerations when working with individuals in the tactical space. Tactical includes populations that are involved in military, firefighting, and law enforcement. We are fortunate to sit down with two individuals that have an incredible experience and knowledge in performance, and especially in tactical performance. First panelist is Scott Morrison. Scott is a board-certified physical therapist with a strong career in sports medicine and science. Scott currently works as a contract sports med provider within the U.S. Special Operations Command's POTFF program. He also consults for a variety of teams and individuals through his company, Physiopraxis. Previous roles include a similar position with the AFSOC, Director of Sports Medicine for the MLS Professional Referee Organization, and running a sports medicine practice in Portland. He also serves as a chair of the AASPT Sport Performance Enhancement Special Interest Group and is currently pursuing his PhD through the University of Verona. Our second panelist is Lance Stuckey. Lance has been in the field for over 20 years, training elite athletes across numerous professional industries. He began as a performance intern with the Carolina Panthers and followed that experience with a full-time coaching position at the University of Maine. In 2010, Lance transitioned industries, applying his diverse skills and experiences to train elite athletes across the military. For more than nine years, he worked with soldiers in the 3rd Special Forces Group at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, working with both healthy and wounded soldiers who would rapidly deploy to missions across the globe. Currently, he works with the Air Force Special Operations Command Unit, collaborating with the Performance Optimization Team to develop an intense and blanketed care program for elite Air Force operators. Welcome, Scott and Lance. Thank you both for joining tonight. Scott, how are you doing? Doing well. Thanks for having us. Appreciate it. And Lance, what's new in your world? Uh, just uh, looking forward to talking some shop right here and, you know, growing a little bit professionally and hopefully others uh, enjoy what we have to say. Right. So our plan is to talk about a number of things, and we're really excited about this conversation. And I know I just highlighted your respective journeys, and you both have extensive and diverse experiences in the world of performance. So the first question I'd like to begin with tonight, and something that I think many of our listeners would be curious to know is, why did you make the decision to transition into or getting involved with tactical military space? And Scott, I'm going to start with you, then kick it over to Lance. Just to be clear, all opinions and views are my own and are not the opinions and views of my employer workspace. So uh, anything I get wrong is on me and uh, we'll go from there. Yeah, it's a interesting space and I like interesting opportunities is a huge part of it. The, my family has a pretty strong military history within uh, each generation. I have uh, currently brother uh, serving but for me, I've often joked that I'm the least sports interested sports person because I care a lot less about the uh, game itself and a lot more about the physiology and performance behind it. So the decision making processes that let us achieve performance, which is somewhat highlighted by uh, different domains and careers. The military has been an interesting place because of the uniqueness of the demands and right around the time where I was thinking of, you know, where, where am I looking to go next? There's a few good opportunities and ended up choosing to uh, go into the Air Force, mostly because one, it was an interesting domain, but two, 
I was very impressed by the um, lieutenant colonel who had stood up that element, and I wanted to spend, uh, spend some time working with her to see her leadership style, and I thought it would be uh, beneficial. So multidimensional, but uh, largely just interest in something new. Right. So a little bit of family history and then also this uniqueness of demands. And we're going to talk a little bit about that, but do you want to just provide a little bit of information on what you mean when you say this uniqueness of demands? Yeah, I think we talked a little bit about this previously in our private conversation, and I think we'll go into it more later. But the the big, big element for me is the right and left tails of potential outcomes are much fatter in the military than they are in just about any other domain, largely because there is no oversight, right? Every every sport has a board that uh, decides things. If you do a rule change, there's a whole process for it. So it's not that there aren't plenty of uncertainties within the demands of sport, but it's different when the goal of sport is a fair playing field, let the best man win. And military is, you know, fairness is not really uh, necessarily what we're looking for uh, in a firefighter department. Right? You're not going in. The goal is not fairness. The goal is to execute incredibly well and uh, be as dominant as you can be within that. So I think those demands, as well as the wins and losses being much, much higher stakes, uh, lead to a little bit different. And then the final element is the history of military is so rife with phenomenal decision makers, which filters down to some elements of everything that occurs in there. So it's a, it's a very different mindset and approach to things, both that the, what they're approaching is very different. And also the mindset, I think, uh, tends to be different as well. Awesome. Thank you for providing a little bit more color on that and definitely excited to hear a little bit more. And, uh, Lance, over to you. So what do you think, you know, can you tell us a little bit about your decision to transition? I know you had some experience, at least the NFL early on and then University of Maine. Uh, and then now at least a long career with the tactical population. Tell us a little bit about that transition or how you kind of got involved or why, you know, you've enjoyed being involved in this space. So all the opinions on the talk today are based on uh, my own personal beliefs and not based on uh, the Air Force. So again, if anything is misunderstood it is on me not on the air force <clears throat> really i don't have much family history in the military it's, it was all brand new to me uh transitioning from athletics uh into the tactical population um really i i, I believe it was a lot of uh good luck i was at the right place at the right time uh was even able to start in the military before the potif was even stood up um before any thor 3 facility was even stood up that it was the very beginnings um long story short uh i was i was working at florida state was transitioning up to uh university of maine i applied for a job uh within just the the regular army at an mwr facility um a it brought me closer to family uh b just always been really intrigued by the military i think a lot like scott like knowing the physical demands that the individuals would have to do uh really this was was during um the height of afghanistan uh was was really interested in how uh these soldiers the airmen were able to be on the ground um and and really endure some rough 
physical terrain, as well as uh, some austerior uh, climates, you know, getting really hot, getting really cold. And, and just the, the way they were able to push through um, really intrigued me. I was brought in the, the MWR facility. Uh, they kind of told me it was going to be kind of like the POTA where we'd have control and be able to, to train guys. Um, the garrison command really thought our expertise was better served of training um, some PT failures. Uh, so really the first year within the military was not the, the best uh, experience I had. I was actually looking to take a pay cut and go back into athletics. Uh, fortunately for me, I was able to, to really get build a relationship with Ray Bear, who's over at Third Special Forces Group. He's uh, the, the director of the human performance uh, team out there. Uh, he brought me on as one of the first contractors under the POTIF um, to work with Third Group. And, and really, that's when my love of the tactical population really blossomed. Uh, it, it wasn't long before we were in there. We, we had one rack um, to, to train a couple thousand guys, right? Like, and it's one of those things, like the field of dream, like, man, you build it, they will come. We have pictures of where we had one rack, one set of dumbbells, um, a couple physio balls, some, some rowers, and that's about it. But we have pictures from a scaffolding, right? Like uh, we had about 30 guys in a, about a 700 square foot facility and the whole floor is just full of these guys because they saw what we were able to do um and and they were really buying into the type of training we were, we were able to do and they were they were seeing the benefit of it when they were going down range right uh you know some some of the uh afghans that they were working with like before they were training with us like they were struggling to keep up with these guys on going up the mountains like our guys in full gear uh really struggling and then I remember it was the second deployment that uh, one of my teams went on. They're like, man, those uh, Afghanis had to keep up with us this time. We were, we were kind of leading the way. Um, so just, just seeing the difference between the athletics to the tactical population, like the, the drive, the push, all that is like, that's really ingrained uh, in the type of training that I do and that I really love to do. And, and uh, just building those relationships with these guys has, has been fantastic. So um just around about stories just right place at the right time I, I really got lucky with it yeah you mentioned some of the limitations that you had just from an equipment uh standpoint but then you also said that the first year wasn't necessarily the best year it was really tough and then scott you also were nodding your head along when he said that so lance my question to you is what made that first year so tough and then a follow-up is then to scott same question have you had any experiences like that like with your first year as well something to think about while lance answers here so that that first year um, wasn't really working with the soft population, you know, the uh, special operators. It was more of the big army. Um, and, and like I said, people who cannot pass a two mile run, um, people who cannot pass their push up, sit up test. Uh, and, and that that is not why I came into the population. Right. Like I wanted to train guys that we had to pull out of the weight room. Right. We, we wanted the, the type A personalities to go um and, and get after it and and really there was a lot of of soul searching then and and just being at the right place like getting to know ray getting to know jason jason pompili was another one of my co-workers uh and, and we really built a team and, and that culture over and 
if anyone has ever worked with the soft population, they know they know the type of personality I'm working with. Uh, everyone that that is looking for the edge, similar to what Scott said, like, does it have to be on a fair playing field? No, they're looking for the tactical edge that have that advantage over the enemy, over the, the people that they're going out. Um, to put it bluntly, the people that they're hunting down to, to take out that do bad things to good people. So we want to do bad things to bad people, right? And and they're looking for that edge. And, and that has really revitalized. I, I mean, I've been in it for 14 plus years now, 15 years and uh in the soft population and uh just seeing that uniqueness and in, in that drive to get better each and every day and the drive that the train like your brother's life depends on it because it really does and they take that to heart yeah well, so thank you for that um to to answer your question no personally not really because uh, i've been fortunate and um places I've located, but the awareness of what happens um, there, you have to remember, this is a huge organization and you are dealing with everybody within that organization potentially. So there's a lot of diversity in the role and uh, to Lance's point, you know, a lot of times you come in thinking you're working with one population and then you get shuttled off to potentially another. And then there's all the logistical nightmares that tend to happen and come. And there's just a lot of uh, growth stuff. So I think Lance would probably attribute the some of the similarities at that point to some of the newer initiatives that have been rolling out over the last few years of good ideas um, that maybe aren't uh, always uh, timing timing of the resources and the idea and the uh, individuals isn't always on on time. So you, you get some of these uh, barriers and things like that. But the other biggest thing is even in some of the special operation group, there's, there's a mindset or a belief of this is what it's going to be like. And there seems to be a pretty hard shift after a little bit, especially um, in more specific domains of, oh, okay, this this isn't collegiate level strength and conditioning. I have to train tactical individuals. It's not my football program copied over to with a different header. It's an actual, it's a very different sport. And so I think that's where, um, and I'd be interested on your thoughts on this, Lance, but that's been the most interesting thing to me is because to hire in, you have to have a good background. That means that you're coming in with a lot more beliefs, which means that it's a little bit harder sometimes to pivot and, you know, you're not dealing with the same thing anymore. The demands are different and the demands over time, again, in your career, you can see as places change, as demands change, you know, how much does the aerobic system play into things versus where it used to, right? So that to me is sometimes the struggle as well is trying to apply the you, you come in beautifully equipped to deal with a problem that is not in front of you. And unless you can observe where you are and reorient yourself to that, I think that's where a lot of times I've also seen uh, some issues. But I'm interested in your thoughts, Lance, on that. Yeah, I, I mean, I'll totally agree with that. It's That's another beautiful thing about the tactical population, right? No two days are the exact same. It's, I mean, tomorrow is going to be totally different at my work than it was today um whatever's happening in the world is going to dictate what we do too as well right like 
Uh, we're always looking for that. Um, and even a step further, we have to go augment the other branches of the military, right? Like, so we're, we're helping out on the army side, we're helping out on the Navy side, we're, we're, we're doing that. So how am I gonna train a guy that's gonna go out with the, with the Navy and doing, doing a mission set as opposed to a guy with the army doing a mission set? Two different type of mission sets, um, two different type of demands. So really getting the knowledge of what everyone else is doing is is really important how can we complement that and i think another thing that and i'm sure it's the same way with you too scott like in athletics the team is pretty much forced to train with you mm-hmm. in the code of you have to sell your program each and every day you have to go in there and prove your worth each and every day and guess what if you can't do it the guys aren't going to come train with you if they don't see the benefit of training with you, they don't have to do it. They have the luxury of being having the big boy rules and they can go train whatever they want. Um, so each day you're a salesman and your own belief system, right? Like, and I, I think that being able to pivot and give the guys what they want and also taking what you want in that program, like putting it together, there's not much of a science that you can do with it. I think that's more the art and the, the practical application that you can do with it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that's the biggest thing is all of your systems and strategies that are based around having a number of people who show up at a certain time in front of you breaks down um, and complete different side thing, but the social media and podcasting is such a phenomenal uh, area of information saturation. So you have to be aware of what is being said so that you can answer it. Cause you know, people who are coming to you are asking you questions based off of them doing their best effort to figure out the best. Like Lance said, they're trying, this isn't somebody who's coming in just waiting for you to tell them they are looking and you have to know what you're talking about. So I, I agree it's selling your system, but it's also actually knowing what you're saying. Like you have to be very sound. You have to admit when the uncertainty is there, point it out. Don't, don't try and sell something that isn't there and just point out, you know what? We don't know these things. That is an interesting idea. I've heard it before. I don't use it. Here's why. Um, Here's why I would potentially use it. Here's why I currently don't. So for me, that's a huge part of the whole thing of getting the buy-in is you got to have a conversation. Oh, and agree. You have to be fully transparent with it. I think these guys can sniff a fake from a mile away. And and if you're not, you know, walking the walk and talking the talk and, and actually willing to be humble and sit down and talk to them about like good ideas, bad ideas. And if, if you're just arrogant and not going to take that feedback, they're not going to come see you. I, w- I wouldn't want it any other way. Right. Like that, that means <laughs> that they're actually trying to get better. They're yep. trying to push themselves. So. That's terrific. It sounds like both of you just hit on one of the biggest differences there between the sport performance space and the tactical performance space and other populations uh, is really uh, the challenge of having to sell yourself on what you're providing every single day. And it sounds like that education is a massive component of that, right? To help create buy-in for for the both of you. So um, I would just briefly give the caveat that at elite levels, 
that is not always the case. Elite level sports will sometimes um, be more of that line of, you know, you don't have you. Sometimes you're just there checking boxes that somebody showed up, right? So I'm, I'm not saying that this is definitely a unique element. Um, probably more so collegiate would be my uh, collegiate high school level probably is the bigger difference as opposed to some of the uh, professional sports. Right. Absolutely. Thank you for that uh, clarification. So Scott, you mentioned that we have these uncertainties, right? And this, with this tactical population with the left and right tails when working with them and Lance, you mentioned that no two days are really the same and each day could potentially bring a different challenge. So understanding that the tactical population operates in a very chaotic, often unpredictable environment and schedule. I think we see phrases pop up like creating robustness. Um, Scott, we're going to start with you. I think a great starting place here would be to tackle that characterization and define what robustness is and maybe shine some light on what your general process is for creating robust individuals that can handle chaotic environments. Gotcha. So uh, robustness, resiliency, anti-fragility, and all the other buzzwords that get thrown around with, uh, you know, a hand waving of go, go do that stuff. Um, it, most words have definitions. So I like to use the definitions that we have, right? The idea of an operational definition, we can go back and we can see, uh, and this is, this is rarely done because there's the idea of this is what it means to me. But if Lance and I don't share the same idea, of what robustness means. And we both say, all right, we're going to work towards robustness. We may end up at very, very different places because we don't share that. So just a brief thing on, you know, people say it's semantics. Well, yeah, semantics matter. That's how we communicate. Meaning is there for a reason. So um, I like David Snowden's definition of, he, he does the Kinevin framework, which is basically five domains. And we can think of it as simple or obvious um, and the big thing here is sense making the idea of identifying when I come into something, what is what, where am I, am I in a simple obvious where we have a best practice, is this something that's complicated, right, where it's, it's still this leads to that and you can tell what's causing it, but it's more complicated you need expertise. Is this something that's more emergent or um, something that's complex right where the intervention does not always equal the outcome that you thought was going to happen. That's typically where we're operating. Or is it chaotic where there's not really necessarily a cause and effect you can look at and you're trying to react to what's going on to create some order. And then he has a fifth domain, which is more of the idea that uh, we can't put it in any of those domains. And then you just sort of subset down until you can uh, go out. And the reason I start with that is you need to have sense making right to when you when you come into a situation looking at it. So then within that we start defining our terms because we can't make sense of things without understanding so typically resilience and robustness are you'll hear them used interchangeably. Um, the the standard definition is going to typically be that robustness is kind of the ability of a system to handle taking hits, getting stress, and still keep chugging on. So your robustness is the old M1 grant, right? You put it in the dirt, rub it around, pull it up, it still shoots. Resiliency is your ability to come back from those things. So you get hit, you get pulled down, you go out and you do a day and it's harder than you expected. You really get after it. And the next morning you're able to get up and go do that again. That Those are typically the two different definitions. So 
on one hand, we're we're definitely looking for robustness, right? We need the ability to operate, but we're also really looking for resiliency, which is if we tie it into more strength and conditioning ideas, fitness fatigue phenomenon would be some of that resiliency, right? Fatigue will mask your fit. It doesn't matter what shape you're in. If you're tired, you can't express it. So I'll usually tell people it's kind of like testing somebody's fitness at mile 23 on a marathon. That is not going to, that is the fitness fatigue idea. So their readiness is low. And that's, that's more where that resiliency idea would be. How quickly do you bounce back? Heart rate recovery would be a good example of resiliency. So there's a lot of things that we do that fit within that. And then Lance, anything to add on top of that in terms of your general process for, you know, how you go about creating or thinking about creating robustness for these individuals? Um. Really, I, I think Scott did a, a great job of, of defining it and in the processes of it. Uh, really, we look at how can these guys handle the different stressors. Um, and, and really, if I'm looking at it through my strength coach lens, it, it's kind of like just like Scott mentioned, like how do we build up that tissue to tolerate the pounding, the wear and tear that these guys are going to take? Um, the resiliency, the same thing, like how we're recovering these guys, how are they able to repeat? Um, we even, you know, whoop has been a big thing in, in the unit. Um, I, I think we're kind of, we're finally transitioning away from the whoop, uh, where guys can actually see the, each other's strain and the guy who had the highest strain of the day won the day. All right. So that's that, that fitness fatigue model that Scott just talked about. And, and the challenge that I started putting out that our staff started putting out the guys, it was like, how high can you get that strain? But how high can you get that recovery score that next morning to build that resiliency? How much are you paying in to that recovery aspect, right? Like, um, and, and the guy that can rebound the highest, it was actually the best winner of that day, right? Like, like to be able to come back and go just as hard and, and, and get that strain again. Um, but also like we, we have a full team of subject matter experts around us. So we can even look at the mental aspect of the psychological aspect, the spiritual aspect. Like we, we have a full blown HPO human performance optimization team where we have the different pillars with which I would fall into that sports medicine pillar. Uh, we have the psychological pillar. Um, we have the medical pillar. We also have that uh, spiritual aspect to it as well. Um, so I, I also look at it as in terms of of how robust can we create that human system as a, as a total, right? Not just like trying to vacuum seal it in the weight room and the performance metrics, but um, when they're back from deployment, they, they've been gone, uh, how are they reintegrating with the family, how are they reintegrating with the rest of the unit? Um, it's, it's not rare for our guys to be gone for 300 plus days a year. Uh, and how, how much stress is it at home and, and how can we aid in that? And, and I think that our team does a great job of coming together and really blanket caring uh, around these airmen to make sure that we can give them the best, best resources they can to stay robust and to be resilient at the same time. Yeah, I, I, Agree hundred percent. Like we're, we're dealing with humans, right? The joke is always that the, the surgery was a success, but the patient has passed away, right? Because you, we get this very focused on whatever it is that we do. And as you were talking, Lance, one of the things I thought of that is also like, we can't have this discussion without doing a needs analysis, 
right? If we don't know what we're trying to do, then building resiliency for what, right? There should always be what, what is the demand? What are we doing, right? Do things change? Is this going to be something where we need a lot of, um, movement on ground, right? Do we need to uh, build that aerobic system? And we need to know this in advance because some of these things don't develop rapidly, right? This isn't some, this is something you start working on well out. And so you have to have a general sense of where you're going in order to define this robustness and uh, resiliency when it comes down to these things. Right. And Scott, thank you for that delineation between resiliency and robustness and Lancer commentary as well. I'm actually pretty excited to learn a little bit later about some of that psychological aspect and how all that is intertwined uh, with your role. And we can definitely talk about that. So um, Scott, you already started talking about a little bit here with the needs analysis, but let's turn our attention to like the beginning of the training process and identifying for these individuals. Okay. We know they need to be robust. We know they need to be able to take a hit uh, and keep going. So when we think about that and trying to assess where an individual is that when they first get to you? How do we find out? And what's your process like for figuring out, okay, how actually robust is this person right now for what they need to do? So I'll split this one with Lance because uh, different domains. So where currently my role is predominantly looking at load management, which typically is more of our energy system type elements, right? Because that's where most of our bone stress injuries, tendinopathies, et cetera, come from, as well as sports medicine in general. So if I'm seeing someone in a sports medicine context, I'm starting from a subjective evaluation. What have you been doing? Where, you know, what, where there's all sorts of percentages thrown around, but the overwhelmingly most of the most meaningful things that come from an evaluation come in during the subjective, asking good questions, understanding what you're asking. Don't try and use your own terminology, ask them how they define things and then ask for explanation, you know, going back to this idea that meaning matters when somebody tells you, you know, my neck hurts when I do this. Well, what does hurt mean? Everybody has a very different definition. And I'll frequently tell the story of a guy, this was uh, non-military who told me it feels like I'm getting stabbed with a knife. And then he's paused and he's like, I've been stabbed three times. It doesn't feel anything like being stabbed with a knife. So we, even people who have the experience don't always associate. So there's just a lot of, for me, aligning my understanding with their narrative, right? They're telling a story forward. I'm coming on during this chapter to try and help them tell the story back to where they're going. That's, that's a sports medicine. And so that subjective is going to define everything else for me. What happened? Where are they? Based off of that, I'll have some hypotheses of, all right, here are the different things that differential diagnosis. I'm thinking it may be X, Y, or Z. How would I rule those out? That's the other key thing. Don't test things that confirm. No tells us information. As, as they say, um, what does feeling wrong or what does being wrong feel like? It feels just like being right. It's finding out that you're wrong that's a problem. And that that is what gives us information to make a decision. So from a that's a big part from a sports med side. From a performance side, I'm looking at, you know, what are the systems? So I'll do, I use... Um, a variety of things. I've been using NEARS a little bit more, uh, typically the Moxie. 
Uh, I do lactate testing. I'll do uh, aerobic and anaerobic typically within those. And then we're going to also look a lot at programming from outside of a energy system perspective, but from a bone perspective, what can bone tolerate? There are rules to training from bone. There are rules to training for tendon and just looking at how do we create a program? Most of them are coming in with the program already. How do we tweak that to ensure that you're maximizing upside and minimizing uh, risk? So, but I, I think Lance would probably be uh, the better one to answer from uh, the rest of that. Yeah. So we, uh, we actually have a hand in, uh, an uh, ANS as the guys are coming through, um, we're able to get the first glimpses of their physical performance. Um, and just to put that out there, not they're not hired totally on their physical performance. It's it's the skills and everything else that they have. We have the different attributes that we're hiring for as well. Um, so like the command is not going to make the decision to hire the individual based on their actual just playing physical performance and recommendations from us. There's, there's a lot of other things that go into it. So I just want to get that out there. Um, but, but we're able to see what their power output is in the vertical jump and the broad jump. Um, we're able to see uh, the, the energy system development, you know, the, the threshold type of training that they're doing with the 300 yard shuttle, the repeat of that. Um, also, we're able to see we're testing a few guys or quite a bit of guys at once on the, the three rep max on the uh, trap bar deadlift. Um, so that's the assessment, uh, physical, uh, we would call it like a combine type of, of event, right? Like if you think of any sports performance event, the, you know, hockey combine, NBA combine, that's, that's kind of like what we do there. Um, now it, it changes a little bit once they are um, selected to the unit. Uh, we have we have everyone that comes in we get to baseline them on four different tests um eventually we'll have five different tests and they're actually all the kaiser testing um with the 10 rep test uh so we have an upper body push upper body pull we have the leg press and we have the hamstring curl with that uh and and we have enough data now to see what that force velocity line should look like and what that power curve should look like with our what we would call more of our elite operators. And we can compare those who are coming in with, with the historical data that we have. Um, another nice thing that we, that we can derive from that is the asymmetries between the left and right uh, side. So um, we really try to stick to, to programming. If a guy's you know, above that 10% asymmetry, we try to do some more unilateral strength training. And it, and it also, the, it'll be dictated on where they fall within that asymmetry. Do they fall on that, that velocity line? Is that where the asymmetry shows or is it on that max strength line? Is that where that asymmetry shows? So that's really what's gonna dictate the type of programming that we do with the individual. Um, and, and you know we can base that on A, the Kaiser testing that we're doing. And then we can also transfer that out into the weight room with that velocity-based type of training that we're doing with them as well. Um, so really those are our four baseline attempts, our, uh, our baseline tests. And then we build in that energy system development. similar to what Scott was talking about, we use, uh, we use the Morpheus app on everyone has their cell phone in the weight room. We throw on the heart rate monitor. They do their HRV recovery test in the morning and they know where they're at. And we can, it's, it's just simple for us to use. We can say, all right, today's your blue day. You hit that, that blue zone. 
you know, whether it's like tempo uh, interval training or, uh, you know, the top of the blue of the, the cardiac output for 10 to 20 minutes. And then we have the green to where they're doing some more like high end uh, threshold training with the energy system development. And then we have our overreaching zone with the reds. Um, so that's how we manage our load on, on our end. Uh, and we're trying to get it to where we have that actually we're trying to standard issue everyone a heart rate monitor when they come into the unit as well so that they can do it on the road. Right now, we only have the heart rate monitors in the weight room. Um, but the beautiful thing about the, the Morpheus app is if it's a Bluetooth heart rate monitor, they can connect to the Morpheus app for free. It's a free app and they can get on it. Um, and it just makes things really simple. Uh, so those, those are our baseline attempts. And that's where we, that's also how we control the, um, the load uh, for the energy system development as well. Right. Lance, I have a follow-up to some of the profiling that you're doing. So have outside of the asymmetries, let's say, you know, you're below that 10% between each yeah. leg, each arm, uh, whatever you're testing for, have you been able to find with all the people you've run through tests, have you been able to find kind of like, Hey, this is what an ideal, uh, individual looks like for our unit. Is that dependent on what the tasks are for that individual that they're going to have to perform? How do you go about that? Right. I, I think there's a lot that is task um, dependent. Um, obviously, if a guy is going to be in a situation where he's going to have to be under a ruck for a longer period of time and, and, and fill him for a longer time than what, you know, your typical power operator would be doing, that's going to be different. Um, but we, we, we kind of can group what our elite level guys are at and see what that velocity is. And on that leg press, that's, that's where we have the most data. We've been collecting the leg press data for four years now. Um, and, and we can see that if a guy is averaging on that velocity zone um, above 2.2 meters per second on the first few reps, uh, guys are typically more uh, inclined to be a, a better physical shape than other guys when it comes to doing the different requirements tasks that are, are needed um another thing and and i'm sure scott feels the same way if he does i'm sure he'll let me know but <laughs> our guys are uh they're carrying rucks they're carrying weapons they're carrying 50 to 100 plus pounds so what type of profile does that exhibit i mean our guys are going to be more force producers than anything else um and really, I think the military and soft in general just it just tends to be more driven towards the force end of the spectrum because guys always want to see how strong they can get and how much weight they can put on the bar. Um, going through the pipeline, it's rucks after rucks, uh, you know, run after run. And it's it's really until they get up to more of the specialty units where they can kind of start seeing what the different different rate coding, you know, can get to, and, and then being a more holistic athlete, I would consider them more the elite level athletes, like more into the professionals than the high school or the collegiate athletes. Yeah. I couldn't agree more with the, I, there's the belief. And then there's the, again, going back to the needs analysis, what are the needs you need an engine that can continually produce submaximal level forces over time and one of the big things is it's it's not frequent that you are operating at maximal capacity but it is frequent that you are repeatedly repeatedly operating at decent levels for long periods of time 
while still having to execute skill without any detriment and make decisions in high stress environments. So I usually look at it as we're trying to build a physiological platform that has the ability to handle whatever is being thrown at it, right? So they, there's the term of, uh, are we allowed to curse on here? <laughs> the FU strength idea, right? Uh, well, they they'll talk about FU money. And I use that analogy that we want FU strength, we want FU fitness, whatever, because we don't know what's going to happen. So you need assist, you need a big aerobic engine, but you can't be a marathoner because you'll crumple. You need some size, but you can't be too big because that interferes with your ability. So you see anybody who really specializes does not do quite as well performance-wise, and that's true in every sport and domain, but I agree 100%, Lance. Most of the interest, and my own personal opinion is just, I mean, this is, it's a lot more fun to lift weights than it is to suffer for a long period of time, um, but suffering for long periods under load is probably one of the most important things uh, that that is, on, and this isn't specific to any particular element of today's like we have records of the Assyrians doing this right we we know that the I think it was the I think it was the Assyrians were the first ones to experiment with changing weights of shields to see if marching it would make differences right we have uh, records of people who got rid of mules because they'd save money politically and then their armies were unable to achieve distances that they had intended and ended up losing wars over it so if you can look over time and um rob Bohr's done some great work on rucking and looking at this and he's got a paper that just shows loads over time and it's been pretty similar up until recently it's increased and so we will see that, but yeah, it's the ability to have a huge aerobic engine, which does not come fast. It takes a long time over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, kind of like strength. Yeah. Awesome. And Lance, are you finding that some of the objective testing that you mentioned assists with some of that education and buy-in that you're both talking about earlier? I know you said sometimes you can go 200, 300 days before even seeing somebody again. So I imagine getting them to not only just do, but understand why they are doing is a really important thing. Oh yeah. Uh, wholeheartedly. I, th I think that it just aids in that, that education piece that we talked about earlier. Um, if you're not educating the the guys on the, the why, the intent, the purpose behind the program um, and to see that it's actually written specifically for their needs. I, I think if you can't do that, they're not going to buy into it. And in the simplicity of, of how we can come over to the computer screen and, and you have that power parabola and you have that force velocity line and you can say, hey, hey, look, here we're going to break into the thirds. Here's your velocity side. Here's your power side. Here's your your force, your max strength side. And and where does all your reps fall in line with in terms of velocity? Most of the time, the guys are on their on that furthest to the right of that of that strength aspect which is, is required, right? Like, I mean, just, and Scott spoke on that too. We, we have to have those force producers to be able to do it. Um, and, and really to me, if they're here for a, an extended period of time for more than, you know, one or two phases, like the low hanging fruit on that is like, they're all super strong. They don't have to be strong. Like how strong is strong enough, right? If, if I have a guy deadlifting 600 pounds, I don't think he's going to have to do that out in the field ever. Hopefully he doesn't have to, right? <laughs> um, 
but how efficient are we at contracting that muscle contraction? And then the low hanging fruit to me is that going way on the other end of the spectrum and trying to trying to more neurologically with that velocity based type deal, like with that starting strength, with that sub 40% of that one RM. Um, and really until guys see where they are, like they think that perfect example, I've tested one of the new guys last week and uh, he thought he was going to be a velocity guy through and through because he did plyos all the time when he was 16, right? That, that was years ago, right? Like just, and he got up to a 33 inch vertical, which is, 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 is a respectable vertical, right? Like I would love to have that. But when we got into the testing on the leg press, he saw that we had, what was it? Six reps in that power, which, you know, uh, that checks, right? And then he had another four reps in that max strength where he had none in that first third of that graph. And his eyes were just like, oh my gosh, I can't, well, I guess that's right. Like I can't argue the, the numbers on it. So um, really he was like, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to be more evenly dispersed through that. Uh, so that, that was, you know, just last, I think it was last Friday that I was able to, to show this guy brand new to the unit. He's like, yeah, and the, that already builds that trust that already builds that buy-in into that program to say, all right, get me to that next level. Yeah. And appreciate that, Scott. I really like what you said too. And this kind of ties into that buy-in in my opinion was that um, the idea of asking these good questions from the start and this subjective um, questioning that you're doing, and then also asking them to define things. Okay. What does hurt really mean to you? Help them. You said, help them tell the story back to themselves. And I think that could really help with that buy-in part because it's really them feeling they're a part of that process. It's not you just coming in saying, hey, we're going to do X, Y, and Z, but it's like, hey, I hear you. You're speaking to me. And based on this information, if I understand you correctly, what you're saying from the information that they lead with and the storytelling that they do, okay, now, and based on what I know that they're going to have to be able to do now is kind of how I pick my assessments and, and find out what is actually right for this individual. Is that correct? Yeah. Uh Within the framework of that, yes, uh, our our job is to allow them, they are the experts on themselves. I'm not an expert on the person who comes in. I'm not an expert on what they do. They are the subject matter experts on what they do. I'm an expert in what I do. And what we're trying to do is have a collaborative decision to identify the things that are the most meaningful for them. The only thing that I would add is the assessment when we assess things, a lot of times assessments are dictated by, you know, what the last Con Ed course we went to or the equipment that we have available. And a lot of times we just keep trying to ask the question that's easy to ask instead of the one that's meaningful with the rebuttal that, well, at least it gives us something. Going back to our framework, having something that we believe tells us relevance to the situation but when it does not actually tell us that, that is more damaging than just acknowledging we don't know this and then proceeding as if we don't know. So I, I would say validity, reliability are two things that you'll say, oh, this is valid and reliable. Like it's, you know, you get the package of validity and reliability, you sprinkle it on the device. Reliability is your responsibility. I mean, Lance, you know this, you've done tons of tests and then you see someone else do a test. You're like, oh, those, those results we can just throw away. Because it's the device did what it, you told it to do. 
You're the one in charge of that process. That's where reliability comes from. Validity comes from our interpretation of that number. And we can reliably, or we can uh, interpret it in a valid manner, and we can also interpret it in an invalid manner. So under the test test with the test test, that number that we get, we have to know what that means and what it's telling us. So yes, we have to identify. So the, the tests that we decide for that individual are pulled from the test that we understand that we can get reliable, consistent efforts. And then validity really comes down to that decision-making of what tests I'm going to use. That is the validation. That's the process of using tests in a valid manner, because I know what they're trying to do. I know what this is measuring, and I understand how that anchors on to the other. And so then I can make a decision based off of that. Otherwise, you get people doing, uh, we, we won't name the movement screens, but uh, various options have been thrown around, which is it doesn't matter. Oh, it only takes X number of minutes. Yeah. But if you're working with a group of people, that's a lot of time. And I need that data to be meaningful, not ritual. Yeah. I love that. Thank you, Scott. A lot of great little nuggets in there. And, and I appreciate that. So the, ultimately the data that you collect from these assessments, you know, are pieces of information that have to be inputted into a system to help guide decision-making. Scott, I know you have quite an interest on data-informed decision-making. I know this is an area that you really like. Uh, can you speak on the importance of having frameworks? I know you just mentioned framework a second ago. Uh, the importance of having frameworks and models. Yeah, so I um, I really like John Boyd a lot. Uh, he's a Air Force pilot, become engineer, and has a number of different theories, but the OODA loop is one that he developed, which is become doctrine uh, in a lot of branches, as well as you'll see business and a lot of other places take it. So there's there's a lot of decision-making loops, but it's the idea observe, orient, decide, act, right? You have to observe in order to orient yourself. So those are the first two steps and they're the most important. If we think of it in a sport context, uh, think of Newell's model of perception action coupling. You have to move in order to perceive, you have to perceive in order to move. So OODA loop is the idea we're observing and we're orienting. If we don't have a model, what are we orienting to? We don't, we don't have any idea where we are in this space. So when we think of the idea of sense-making, which I really like that term because it's what we're doing, where information is only valuable if we're able to make sense of it, right? And there's multiple layers to how we make sense. But a good example would be somebody's coming in and they're presenting with a issue. And I'll typically use a, so one of my frameworks is the idea of tolerance versus capacity. Is this a tolerance issue? Is this a capacity issue? And we can think if we make it into quadrants, the upper right quadrant is going to be high tolerance, high capacity. This is a person cleared to train, you can get after it. Bottom left quadrant, is low tolerance, low capacity. This is the person where we see a brace, a splint, some sort of protective mechanism. They can't tolerate much, and that little bit that they can tolerate is enough to injure them, right? And then we have the top left and the bottom right quadrants, which are kind of the, the two outliers. One of them is going to be high tolerance. So if we have tolerance on the y-axis, high tolerance is going to be somebody who can they can keep going, right? And this is a lot of our, our guys. 
runners is another good example. The person who tells you it started hurting on mile two and by mile 30, I couldn't do anymore. That's someone they've got very high tolerance. They're getting pain early on. They're getting symptoms early on, but they're able to just continue to deal with it. Whereas your bottom right quadrant where you have high capacity, low tolerance, this is the, uh, the people who are a little bit more intimidated, they think something might be wrong, right? They the, think of the guy who just tore his pec benching, getting back into benching. The tissue can tolerate more than what they're psychologically ready for. And so to Lance's point earlier, it takes a team. This is not, my job is not to be a psychologist. My job is to identify somebody who needs to have those sort of discussions. So from a framework perspective, when somebody comes in, if I'm looking at them and I'm like, you know what, this is appearing to be somebody who's dealing with a capacity issue. They just, they don't have the ability to produce torque at this joint. Well, then my, all of a sudden, all of my interventions start aligning with that. I need to do something that will create a physiological change. Whereas if I'm dealing with someone who's a tolerance, it's just low tolerance. They can't actually tolerate this thing. Well, then I don't actually need to change necessarily tissue. It might be that the lower force output that I'm getting has nothing to do with what they're capable of. It's the amount, right? What is the rate limiter here? Is it the capacity or is it the tolerance? So someone with, let's say, patellofemoral pain, where it hurts to kick out, I have no idea what their neuromuscular knee extension mechanism is capable of. I only know how much they can produce for me, which is, I, I'll use the analogy of your cash in your pocket versus your savings bonds. How quickly can you access, right? I don't care how much strength you have tucked away behind your tolerance. I need you to be able to, so I raise tolerance, but tolerance training is different than capacity training a lot of times. So that's where if just an example of once we've aligned with our model, our decision-making flows from it, right? And so one of the things that Boyd says that I also really like is you need multiple models because no model is complete. So you should have, you should be orienting this piece of data as it comes in to multiple models. All right, this is someone, this is someone who's low tolerance, and they're also somebody who's in the detrain phase because they've been dealing with this low tolerance for a long time. They thought taking off two months would be a good idea. Now I have a detrained individual with low tolerance, which is different than a trained individual with low tolerance. So we just keep adding more and more of these models. And as we start aligning, it makes it that when you come, so that's observe orient. Once we're oriented, decision becomes really easy. It, what do you like to do? All right, here's the three things that you like to do that fit within what we need to do. Let's try this one. And then you do it and you observe, did that make a change? If so, great, we keep going. But if your orientation and observation are done well, decision and action can become much more click work. Gotta cool off that mic, Scott. That was, <laughs> uh, that was awesome. I appreciate that. I think one of the things you also talked in our previous conversation about was just making sure that those frameworks and systems are agile enough to handle unforeseen changes, right? So can you speak on that a little bit about how you create uh, agility with your frameworks? So the framework is not necessarily agile. The the process is one that responds to perturbation. So what I was just, if you're observing, orienting, deciding, acting, if you have those KPIs, those key performance indicators that 
will monitor what's going on. So Lance, you were talking about uh, the Whoop band, right? That That is a system that you're not the one going out and making the decision. The process tings on your KPI. You've decided this is a anchor. This is a, we can think of it like an attractor well, uh, the, the place where everything sort of falls down to that center place. That's the thing that everything else organizes around. An agile system is one that recognizes when the state changes, when the system changes, which that comes from having an open framework that uses feedback loops. It's not that the framework is changing. It's that your framework is being exposed to the environment as opposed to think about, I'm sure all of us here have done this. And I know early on for me, all right, this person comes in and uh, you know, 15 years ago, I'd sit down and here's your six month training program. Well, you know, like the eminent philosopher, Mike Tyson says, uh, you know, every plan, everything uh, works right until you get punched in the mouth, right? Everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth. So I don't write a six month rehab program. I have, this is what I'm going to aim for this week. This phase, I have these three KPIs. Maybe we're in a range of motion and controlling the fusion stage, right? And then I know once those are controlled, my next step is going to be starting to work on uh, early work capacity and rebuilding, maybe regaining some tissue capacity and uh, muscular strength. But we don't move to there until my KPIs have told me that I'm done with those initial ones. So I might think it's two weeks. And for this guy, it's five. The agility comes from the fact that when I go in and query, it's telling me, no, you're not ready. Does that make sense? Right. Absolutely. No, I really appreciate it. Tremendous insight there. And it makes you think about something that Lance and I were talking about, right? When you have these individuals that leave for a long period of time, then they come back. It's like, hey, I don't know what it's going to be like in six months. I don't know what it's going to be like in three months, but can I, you know, get my hands on them right now? First principle of thinking, like figure out what is important at this moment and go from there. Is that right, Lance, what you were saying? Yeah, I'll totally agree with that. And I, I think that Scott hit the nail on the head with having to be agile with the the systems that you put these guys in, um, especially as TDY's calm. I'm sure he has different protocols when the guys are on the road, um, as do we. And then, you know, the the hay is made when we have that one-on-one, you know, feedback that we have, mechanism that we have when they're here training with us. And and I'll even take it a, a step further. If If I have you know, a scheduled lift with a guy for the day and we're not able to achieve that, we're going to, we're going to modify that on the fly and be able to, to achieve that, that physical trait that we're trying to elicit for that day, for that block, whatever it is. Um, and the more that they can learn what, you know, maybe uh, an alternate type of exercise, maybe they're dinged up, maybe they had a late night and their recovery score was low and we're, we're, doing more of a rebound type of training session to where they're, you know, doing concentrics only and then doing some high intensity continuous training type of modality uh, to push them into that recovery. And then we can come back and get after it that next day. And I think that they can learn how the workout isn't just like Scott said, the workout isn't married to that calendar, but it's actually, this is the list of work, you know, the the week is a man-made structure anyway. Um, so can we deviate from the actual schedule of it and achieve the same type of training that we're trying to get? Um, 
I mean, we're very fortunate too at our facility to have some some high end tech, you know, especially with the different Kaiser equipment where you're not going to see that in 24 hour fitness gyms when they're on the road. So how do we have that same, you know, velocity base that 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 really high end threshold training that we're doing at home? uh when they're on the road and when they're doing reverse cycle you know it's it's uh that's the unique characteristic of it and and you have to be able to pivot at any point um and and i think that it's just as true on you know on training them physiologically when they're healthy as it is even more so probably when they're injured because when they're injured their place of duty is to get healthy so you have a lot more consistency with that individual um, when they're they're injured, and, and you can see them actually make better progress in the short term than you can when they're gone on the road when they're actually quote unquote healthy and they're not having to come in for rehab. Uh, so I, I think that is another unique challenge, and that that every practitioner has to be comfortable doing when when they're not under their purview um to be able to to elicit that change that you know we still have that same framework we're working from the where we want them to get but we have to train them in the now and how do we get them to where we want to get them right and that that's still constant communication when they're downrange when they're tdy when they're wherever they are and and be able to to solve that riddle together and it's it's really a teamwork on that aspect absolutely excellent and scott i just want to go back to you for a second there with the observe, orient, decide, and act. I want to make sure if anyone listening wants to maybe find some more information on this, you said Boyd, what was the name there again? Yeah, uh, John Boyd. But if you just look up the OODA loop, O-O-D-A, um, there's a Chet Williams, I believe his name is. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's Chet Williams. I know the first name's Chet. Um, was sort of one of Boyd's understudies. He's written a few work uh, books on it, but you can, uh, a great general biography about Boyd is just called Boyd. It's a very interesting look at his life. But as far as Udo goes, there, there's some great uh, things out there. There's actually a paper called Ooh, 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 The Sound of a Broken Oodle Loop, which is uh, pretty good. <laughs> oh, thank you. I appreciate that. And um, when you were talking a little bit about stacking models or layering models on top of each other, um, that made me think about an earlier thing that Lance brought up, which was this human performance optimization team. Um, and the way that they do things. So I want to ask a little bit about the physiological components and maybe the other individuals that are involved and how that influenced the decisions that you're making. So I'm going to start with you, Lance. Um, you know, we've seen an uptick in mental health support and resources across the world. Uh, how has that impacted the way you approach like prescription or training or your day-to-day -day conversations with individuals or your, like, your decision-making? And I think not to get too long-winded with it, but really like anything, it, it doesn't have to be um, just mental health, but anything from the psychological standpoint or, or mental health aspect, um, how has that kind of impacted your decision-making at least in your day-to-day -day conversations? Right. Uh, I, I think anyone in the environment will recognize the weight room as, you know, the, the bar, right? Like people will come in and we'll be working out and we'll be hashing out problems. Um, we're, it won't be rare for us to hear the first, you know, bad news that a guy's gotten and he wants to talk about it, you know, while he's squatting, while he's doing cleans, um, it just gets things off his chest. Um, we're 
we're in a unique situation and I, I think that professional athletics is is really trying to build um the human performance optimization team as well you know where they have mental health providers and in every weight room um or at least in the facilities i don't know if they'd be in the weight room or not uh but we're fortunate enough to have a sports psych um a cognitive enhancement uh cognitive performance enhancement specialist uh as well as you know social workers on our staff um and if we sense that there's a problem um and and we get and we have the trust with the individual, we can go go ahead and go point to point with the provider um, on the mental health side of the, the house. Um, and then if we don't feel like we have that trust of the individual to, to you know, kind of tell them to tell their side of the story to the mental health uh, expert, we will urge them, nudge them to get help from the psych pillar themselves. Um, in terms of changing up how I do things, I, I don't think it's really changed much, right? Like, I think at the, at the end of the day, we, and Scott alluded to this earlier, that we're dealing with human beings, um, and we all have to build relationships, right? And, and if you, if you have those relationship driven, um, goals in mind, uh, a, the guy's going to work harder for you. He's going to do exactly what you tell him to do. Um, you'll, you'll see better benefits out of that. But you're also going to be able to, to sense when things are wrong, and he's going to be open and transparent with what, what's going on in his personal life. Um, guys in the military are great at compartmentalizing what's going on, right? They, they're very task-oriented. Uh, so they can come in, and like they're prepping for the big mission, right? Like They're going out on it, and they're, they're going to execute it. And, and a lot of times, like, that's the, that, that can be a sense of like escape. And this is where I'm going to go. I'm going to do, I'm, I've been highly trained to do this. I'm the best in the world at what I do and I'm going to go do, and then we'll deal with everything else when I get back. And I think when they get back, that's the big thing is like just being there for them, touching in, you know, I think I probably have half the unit members, phone numbers, you know, like I can text them any, at any point and just check in on them. We got a couple guys like going through, um, had some acute injuries where they're they're gonna have some surgery later this week, and just been able to touch point to point with them. One guy has never had surgery before, so he's a little apprehensive about that, right? And so, so we're getting back to that aspect, and you know, just encouraging them to go along, uh, touching. You know, it's and unfortunately, uh, divorce is not uncommon within the military, especially given the strains of the the workspace environment um as much as the guys have to be gone it, it takes a special spouse to be able to to you know support the individuals that we deal with um and if we can actually talk to guys and get to know them and just show that you care i think that's the biggest part uh and really just being able to bring in everyone around the the hpo team to to talk about an individual you know it's a we have a week um when they get back we always call it a reset week it's it's basically a re-baseline week right like we're, we're able to go off off compound we're able to do uh we'll do our physical tests on compound and then they actually get an hour to sit down with every provider um and that's really the biggest check-in that we can do with these guys it's 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 all compound for a reason. They're not getting pulled towards work. Um, they can focus on themselves and what needs to happen with that. 
and that's where they get to see the chaplain they get to see this the uh psych that's aligned with them um they get to see sports med and go over the medical history of why they were actually deployed and then we can sit down and talk about each individual so we we know what type of care that we can provide for that individual no doubt. Appreciate that, Lance. Thanks for being candid in that and bringing up some very real things that people are experiencing uh, with that population. And Scott, um, can you speak to your environment maybe and some of the cohesion between disciplines and maybe how those models are layered on top of each other? Like, right, like I know in this model, this is saying this is the best thing, but at the end of the day, it is a human being. So how do we help, you know, how do we get maybe another model that's layered on top of that to, you know, what's the right decision, I guess, or maybe speak on that um, and how those models are connected. Yeah, I think if I'm, if I'm understanding the question correctly, it's less of a specific to my domain and it's more how teams work, right? This is, this is what a team effort is. Um, right. Regardless of what you're doing, where you're at, it's the idea of having a group of people who are experts in their domain, who are also willing to acknowledge that their domain is not the complete perfect and you have teammates right where you sit down and you bounce ideas off each other you should there's there's nothing worse than uh walls between these groups because we're all incomplete right it's we're dealing like you said like lance has pointed out we're dealing with a human and a human is a complex system right we looking at our domains it's it, this is not something that's easily solved there's not a process for here's how we deal with it and you know these these things tend to scale so the same idea of the process of decision making at a larger level if we look at some of the let's say uh business from a business side the the agile framework of decision making right making good decisions rapidly to changing environments or changing situations and having the trust of those around you that you i know my dietitian will solve this problem. Sure, I have spent time doing dietary stuff over my career, but I'm not trying to be the dietitian here. I've got someone for that. I don't try and be the psychologist. I got someone. So that's, I think, the the idea is, did we, did we cover the boxes of the domains that are important? And are all are we all communicating? And this is really, you know, the second big part is no, no, there's an argument that you can never get rid of silos and you'll waste a lot of time and effort doing so. So the best approach is to build walkways between them. Right. So I, I like that idea because you, you kind of do stay in what you do, but you do need to also communicate. And that communication, I think, becomes the key thing. We tend as humans to be a lot more confident in our ability than uh, what we actually are. We always overestimate what we're able to do. So this is where standardizing things like uh, a weekly rounds meeting where you all sit down and you have a discussion. And it's just, that's what you do. And there's people that fall through the cracks if you just think, okay, we'll just go do that. So having these systems in place that team teams tend to function and do better in my experience by having a leader that lets everybody do their thing, but also leads as opposed to one that doesn't is if you're in a domain where nobody can make a decision, there's no forward progress made. 
if you're in a place where everybody makes decisions and then there's also no, because everybody's pulling different directions. But if you have a team that's cohesive, that's all pulling in the same direction, has trust in the person who is leading and um, the person who is leading has trust in them. It's, it, it's amazing what a good team can do. And it's amazing how quickly that can break when the team stops being good. Yeah, I'll, I'll totally agree with that. I think that, you know, I, I just hit on it a little bit with that reset week. That's that's our big time to come together as a team. And we can talk at the end of the day and say, this is what I saw, this is what I saw, this is what I saw, this is what we're doing. Um, and, and we're blessed to have a great team here that everyone's humble. Everyone knows that, like, yeah, I'm going to look at a lens of a strength coach. Like, I'm, I'm a knuckle dragger through and through and through. Um, and I am not going to sit down and try to say I'm going to solve someone's psychological issue that's well above my pay grade, and I won't even try that. Um, but I, I think at the end of the day, just like Scott said, I think it's that communication aspect. I think that's having each other's back. I think that's having an echo chamber of why we're doing things. This is what we're doing, and this is why we're doing it. And if I mean, I, I, I can think clearly like, I share an office with a dietitian. I share an office with three physical therapists, two athletic trainers, and a sports med doc, right? Like, and two two other strength and conditioning coaches. Um, and I've grown professionally so much just by sitting and just listening and observing how they interact with each other, the questions that we have going on. Um, and another beautiful thing that we do is every morning we have a morning stand-up and we talk about each individual that is getting seen for rehab. And then we have a crosstalk with the dietitian, the strength coaches, and the PTs, athletic trainers about what we're doing. Is there a reason to bring the sports med doc in to see this guy? I, I think, I mean, I'll, I'll totally echo what Scott said. I, I think the, the sum is always larger than the parts when you have that good, humble, cohesive team. Um, and I, unfortunately I've seen it on the other end where you're just banging your head against the wall. Like, what are we doing here, guys? Like we have great subject matter experts, but we're not coming together and, and being able to provide the best service for these individuals. Yeah. Um, something Rob Panarello, who's now with the, uh, Panthers, um, but just an absolute legend in both PT and, uh, strength and conditioning. We were talking a little bit about teams and, I really liked his point of I'm I'm never looking to hire the best person. I'm looking to hire a great person who's best for this team. And uh, that I think, you know, that nails it. We had a uh, we had two people on from the NBA, both directors of performance uh, in one of our earlier Kaiser education series. And the talk was related to building organizing high performance teams and a lot of the same there's a lot of parallels between what you both just said and what they said a big theme was discuss and decide right and scott you're talking a little about and those two people were the people that are the leaders they're they're tagged with making the actual decision so for them they're saying many voices behind closed doors everyone has an opinion everyone from these different domains there are walkways between silos but then one voice through open doors um which i really liked which uh, leans into just having someone who's responsible for that decision at the end of the day and and actually deciding. So I really appreciate both that. Just a couple more kind of quicker questions to finish up here. Um, I'm curious to know if there's anything about your experiences 
that you were not expecting or said another way, anything about the opportunity that you're currently in that has surprised you or differed greatly from your expectations coming in? I'm going to begin with Scott and then go to Lance. I mean, I honestly probably not, but it's because I really try and go into places without expectation with the right. mindset that I don't know this. I, you know, I, I always think of Joe Dirt's, uh, the movie where he's standing there with the pipe spraying oil all over the place. And he's like, I'm new. I don't know what to do. Um, and like, if I come in with the mindset that I know how this is going to be, then I'm already starting off as a bad team member. And I'm already starting off with, sure, there may be things that I could step in and do day one without any, but since I think the team is more important than a one-off thing, that for me, the initial part is observation taking in. So I, you know, I, I, I can't think of a, oh, wow, this is surprising outside of the fact that I, I went in expecting things to be different. I expected not to understand. I expected to need to spend time talking to each individual, get an understanding of them. I, I, I have my frameworks. I have my understanding of being a physical therapist. I'm a good physical therapist. I'm a decent strength coach. But that does not mean that I know the setting. And so I try and come in. I've got my tool bag, guys. What are we doing? How do we do this? What is it? And so I've found most of the time surprises come for me as a sign that, uh, you know what, you made a mistake earlier on in thinking you would know what this is like. So I don't know if that's a cop-out answer, but yeah. I appreciate it. And uh, how about for you, Lance, anything that? Yeah, uh, I, I guess I can kind of date it, right? Like making the transition from athletics to my first position um i think i kind of elaborated on that at the beginning of the the talk here um so so i was just shocked that i was actually going to be training pt failures when i was used to training you know stud football players right like working with the nfl working with florida state you know being able to do that uh so that was that was eye-opening but they really like a lot of those individuals really tried hard and they were trying to do the best they could with the little amount of resources they had. And I was just one of those resources that they're trying to leverage to get these people in shape. So they weren't getting chaptered out. So the army could still have that robust meaning that the army is known for. Right. So um, I understand I was, I was part of that cog. Uh, fast forward into the third group. Again, uh, the POTIF was, it, it was even before the POTIF. Um, we had a 700 square foot training room that was right next to the arms room. So guys were cleaning weapons as we were training in there. Um, so that was kind of a shocker to me, the facilities, the lack thereof. All right, we're going to dump all this money into this program, but we're not going to give you a facility. Um, yeah, funny stories. Like we were moving equipment around one of the first days I was there and there was an accidental discharge when someone was cleaning the weapon inside. Needless to say, the first sergeant came out, started yelling, and I had no freaking clue what was going on. Like, I had never even thought I would hear a gunshot in a weight room, but there was an accidental discharge. So facilities would be one. Um, 
I think the most pleasant surprise that I've had is like how close of friends I've made along the ways, both active duty and amongst the teams, how diverse the people are active duty amongst the teams. Um, I mean, coming from a sport, you have a lot of, of people that the culture is what the culture is, is there's not too many differences. I mean, take a hockey team on A to a hockey team to B, and there's, there's going to be a lot of similarities there. But within the military, you're bringing in a bunch of diverse backgrounds. Um, actually, there, there's a guy that, that we nicknamed Uncle Jim. He's one of the chaplains. He came in. He was like, I had a bad jump. I think I broke my back. The doctor told me that I'm just being a wuss and that I'm fine. So I did an assessment on him. He's, I got two exercises in. I was like, all right, our assessment's done. He was like 50 years old. And he was like, oh, man, I'm that bad. But he kept coming back and kept coming back. And we built a great relationship. This was back in 2009. And uh, I stay in touch with him. He's retired out in Alaska. I stay in touch with him to this day. We talk weekly, um, typically just reminisce about the, the days when I gave up on him during the assessment, <laughs> right? Like, so that the, the friendships I've made there... Uh, the growth I've had professionally, just being around a bunch of diverse individuals, not just strength and conditioning, where we come from baseball, you know, we've got major league baseball strength coach on staff. We, we have a collegiate level on staff. We have a strong man on staff. We, we have guys from the NFL, from tennis, like all this diverse background and just bringing it into one. Again, if you look at different sports teams, you're all going to have similar things thoughts because that's all you've been exposed to um so the relationships and growth professionally is as i think those have been the the most positive you know unexpected um stimuli that i've had awesome terrific and last question i have for you here for the both of you is what advice would you give to a practitioner that might aspire to work with the tactical populations there's one piece of advice that you can give for somebody that's thinking about getting into it or wants to get into it what would you recommend what advice would you give and i'll let either person start here who's ever ready have at it lance well i, I think it goes with with getting into a diverse background of experience right like you know we we have guys from private sector that are on staff here and like you don't have to be in the professionals i mean there's job requirements that you have to meet you have to be you know a certain level of of education and and, and have the certain certificates if you're a strength and conditioning coach you have to have what is it five years experience in the at least the collegiate setting um so you have i mean that's that's a non-negotiable right there but while you're getting that experience, get exposed to as many sports as you can. Get exposed to um, the combative sports, like like any MMA. Like I'm sure the UFC out at Vegas is doing internships all the time. I think that would be something that would be spectacular to have experience in. I, I, the energy system development for those guys is going to be similar to what we do with our guys. Like they're going to have to be able to ramp up and ramp back down quite a bit. Um, while staying moving. I, th I think just getting that diverse background there. If there's anywhere like tactically that you can get some experience, like first responders, um, you know, uh, or 
the SWAT team or something like that. Like the NSCA has multiple different gigs within that in that tactical setting. I think getting that and then just doing the research and, and knowing what type of, of individuals you're going to be working with. And is that something that you want uh, to do? Do you want something that's going to come in and challenge you? Like an individual will challenge you day in, day out because they're trying to get the best for themselves. And they want to see if you can guide them to get the best, right? So I th you have to prove yourself every day and you have to be used to doing that. And having the education and the experience behind it will lend itself to be able to, to uh, display that. Absolutely. Thank you. And Scott? I'm, I'll take a different text since Lance covered all the great ones. Um, network, get to know people. I mean, um, in, in every industry, every job, spend some time uh, getting to know people, not with the intent to get a job, because if you do that, it's very easy to tell. Don't be the person who's pestering and annoying and always being like, what do you think about this job? What do you think about, <laughs> right? Like create relationships like Lance was talking about earlier. And as you build relationships, opportunities arise from them. So that's, that's the first, like, but that all emerges from you being interested in your field and doing a good job. So a lot of stuff Lance was talking about. The second one is determine how much it matters to you and then open up your door. Like does moving to Alaska, does moving to Germany, are these things that you would be willing to do? If so, you know, do so. If you're the person who's like, well, I really wanted to work in this setting. However, I'm only willing to work at the local place. Well, you know, my might not happen uh, quite as well. So it's not that it's a right decision. It's not that it's a wrong decision, but you need to actually understand how meaningful it is to you and how much that matters. I moved across the country three times over the last 10 years because I found interesting roles that were more important to me than the hassle of a move. I'm not saying that's a good idea. I'm just saying like it's it's not the sort of thing that necessarily shows up. If you, the law of large numbers, right? The bigger the numbers are, things that happen only random, rarely happen on a regular basis when you have a large enough. So that, those were to be the biggest things. It's diversify, create relationships, but mostly what Lance was saying. <laughs> well, awesome. Appreciate you taking a different route there. Uh, definitely beneficial for those listening and, and thank you so much. So a really big thank you to the both of you, our two panelists, Scott Morrison and Lance Stuckey to keep up to date with Scott, you can follow him on Instagram at physio underscore praxis, P-R-A-X-I-S, and on Twitter at Scott Morrison. And I'm going to spell that the right way. Scott, correct me if I get it wrong, but that would be S-C-O-T-M-O-R-R-S-N for Twitter. All right. Thank you. Um, and as I mentioned in the introduction, he also serves as a chair for the AASPT Sport Performance Enhancement SIG Group. So please check that out as well. To the both of you, we appreciate your time, the insights that you provided related to the tactical space and all the excellent work that you and your colleagues are doing to help bring out the best from the individuals that you are both working with. So thank you and have a great night.